Hey, it's Freddy Cruz reaching back into the archives once again to a conversation I had with a friend of mine. Her name is Anna J. Walner, a local artist. We flash back to the early 20th century in Galveston with her latest novel, Saltwater and Driftwood. As you may or may not know, the Great Storm of 1900 remains the deadliest natural disaster in our nation's history, killing between 6,000 and 8,000 people on Galveston Island. And Dana's novel flawlessly blends devastating facts from the historical event with fiction. During this episode, we talk about her writing process and how life in a hurricane zone like Houston influenced her work. Get your copy now of Saltwater and Driftwood at AnnaJWalner.com. Hi, I'm Ed Sheeran. This is Bruno Mars. Hey, it's Katy Perry. This is your man Flo Rida with Freddie Cruz. This is AJ Mitchell with Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Cruz. Let's go pick Mr. 305 and you already know what it is. My name is Freddie and it's time to cruise through HTX. I remember starting this book back in, gosh, it had to have been the fall of last year. And if that doesn't give you guys an idea of the kind of work that goes into writing a historical novel, I I don't know how to explain it because there's just so much research that has to be done about that time period and the way that Gauss, you know, we've all here in the Houston area, you know, you you included, you you go down to Galveston all the time and you just, you don't think about the way that it used to be, but um, I had to sit down with the historical society, the Galveston Historical Society, and ask them for maps of the, you know, the whether what roads were paved, what were gravel, what were shell or shale, and all of this extraneous information that you would say you're never going to find that useful. But somehow it ended up playing a role in the book in some way, shape, form, fashion. Even the most minute of details ended up being part of what brings that gilded age, the 1900s, the early night. Well, it is 1900 to life. So it needed to be as realistic as possible down to the paving of the roads. What is incredible to me is that there is even any kind of historical record from that era because uh, your story, and I, I do want to, after we, after I ask you this, I'd love to get the elevator pitch. So I guess we're kind of going a little bit backward, but um, you know, the, the storm of the, the, the great storm before they were naming hurricanes, it was the great storm of Galveston, Texas that wiped out the entire town. It's the reason why there's even a seawall to begin with is to keep it from ever happening again. So um, I've got to know like, what part of your life were you able to bring into the crafting of the novel? You talk about the research, but you know, you and I are living this every single year, hurricane season. So how were you able to uh, weave in your experience with you know Harvey and Ike and all of these things into what this storm was and then mixing the two? You bring up an, a very interesting point. So, yes, uh, we've both been through Hurricane Ike, Harvey, even Allison. You know, uh, everything that we've been through here as Houstonians, it's weather-centered, weather-related. So weather has played a huge part in my life growing up. And I remember my dad telling me about the 1900 hurricane. And it wasn't until a lot later in life that uh, I think it was Hurricane Andrew that really got me into watching the Weather Channel religiously from June 
all the way until the end of hurricane season. I would wait for the, for, for the fifties, you know, the tropical update that was like, you know, exciting to me. And um, so, so being where you lived through some of that, that type of weather I've been through multiple hurricanes, multiple tropical storms, and then a tornado actually hit my house um, many, many years ago. So I've lived through one of those. So having firsthand experience of what the wind would sound like and how, you know, how it feels to be at the mercy of mother nature and not know that uncertainty that it brings, that's all kind of part of the character development that you'll see uh, Clara and her sister Lydia and the people in their home go through those kind of emotions that you would go through even today in a category four, you know, category three uh, hurricane, whenever it hits the Houston Gulf area, even today with all the modern improvements that we have. Yeah. And they had no technology. It was like newspaper was barely a thing. And when you really think about it, you put on your human history goggles. They have barely gotten the newspapers just like 30 minutes ago. There was no TV, no radio, none of that. You couldn't just, hey, uh, Siri, can you give me the latest hurricane updates? This came out of out of nowhere for these people. And uh, th- there, there were no automobiles. You couldn't just hightail it, you know, cross the causeway and, and get out. So um, I'd love to get a little bit of insight as to the what the story is about, because you talk about Clara and it, it reads in reading the synopsis is almost like a Titanic, but a Galveston version, because you're talking about a girl and her mom and the Gilded Age and this uh, bachelor. It is. So, it, you know, there was this mentality back then. So a uh, brief history, Indianola, which no one or very few people, I can't see no one, but very few people have heard of. Uh, Indianola, Texas was the original shipping port of Texas. Indianola was wiped out by a hurricane. Several years later, they decided that Galveston would be better suited. So Galveston was to become the main shipping port of Texas because the continental shelf, and this is all you know, meteorological technical jargon, but the continental shelf was was thought to be too shallow. They even did a study to see as to whether or not they should create a breakwater to prevent a tragedy like what happened in Indianola from happening in Galveston. But during the Gilded Age, there was this, this rivalry between Galveston and Houston for the shipping rights to the state of Texas. And Galveston was known as the New York of the South. It was resplendent. It was beautiful. I mean, you go down there now and you take a tour of the Moody Mansion, you walk the Strand, and you can just see how, you know, a lot of that architecture remained. And it was gorgeous and it was stunning. And there was this sort of hubris to the mentality of people there that no storm could ever overtake Galveston. No storm could ever wipe us out. We will, Houston will never surpass Galveston's ability to you know, be the main export uh, center of Texas. And once the 1900 hurricane hit, it, it changed everything. It changed everything for Galveston. It changed everything for Houston. They were able to secure a billion dollar grant from the government and you know construct the Houston Ship Channel to become what it is today. 
Let's talk about the plot line with Clara and her mom and The Bachelor as it pertains to the storm, because you begin the story before the storm hits, and then it's all about how they are trying to survive and thrive uh, amidst all this chaos. So Clara is 17. She is our main character, and it is through the eyes of her it's all written down in her journal, which her granddaughter finds after her passing. And she writes of her life up through and after the storm. So her mother was very into the Galveston High Tees and Society, the Tremont House, uh, which was a, a, a very posh uh, place to have high teas, debutante galas, and she wanted all of this for herself, but she also wanted it for her daughters. But Clara, as she's, as it says in the beginning of the book, mother always said that I was born with a spark that would, if left unattended, grow into a fire that would one day consume me. So we already start and we see that Clara had a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a defiant streak. So she doesn't want to become what her mother wants, which is the proper wife and the, 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 the lady of society that her mother is so aspiring for her daughters and herself to become. And so she, now her sister is perfectly willing to go along with the plan and she's betrothed to a very nice young gentleman, but the storm of 1900 changes absolutely everything. And um, so everything that her mother and Clara reflects, you know, later, how everything that they had worked for, everything that her mother held dear had been completely reduced to nothing. How socioeconomic standing was of no value any longer. We were simply survivors, those that did survive. And there were a lot of them. Historical fiction is so hard to pull off because you're dealing with all these actual events and then people. And I got to know because you're talking, you're talking all the weather lingo and the engineering when it comes to Indianola and Galveston. And here you've got a story that you just described that's like the complete opposite. So you're like left brain and right brain. And, and how were you able to merge the two or I guess better framed what would you say would be the biggest challenge when writing saltwater and driftwood? Because as as writers, we 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 want we want to keep from from doing the info dump. Nobody likes info dumps. And yeah, so how how were how you able to reconcile all this knowledge with creating this compelling story? Through dialogue and the social interactions that you'll see in the book between her father, who works at the cotton exchange. And cotton and sugarcane were two of the main exports that, uh, out, of the, out of Galveston. And uh, so it's through the dialogue of important people within the higher echelon of Galveston society that you sort of understand this, this, you know, this culture, the things that have happened in the past and how they believe that it will never happen again. And all of that had to be carefully woven in through dialogue and experience and, and, and memories of bringing things, uh, you know, even further into the past. 
that people are, are talking about. And we do see some of these stories. So a, a, a very famous story from the, the, 19, the Great Storm of 1900 uh, is St. Mary's Orphanage. And so we do see from the point of view of Sister Bernadette, as she welcomes in some of the orphans from the train to the orphanage, and then that, that scene where no one from the orphanage survived. Mm. And we know this from historical details. And during the, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything because you can, you can look all of this up, but during the search and rescue you know, on the beach, they find a clothesline and they pull on the clothesline and find a child. And then they pull and they find another child and another child and another child. And then finally the sister at the very end, she had tied all of the children to herself in an effort to save them, but was unsuccessful. All 93 children and the sisters at St. Mary's Orphanage perished in that flood and uh, or in, in that hurricane. And that is in the story as well. So we, we do take different stories, different point of views, not only Clara's and her family's, the Gladys family, who is completely made up, but uh, they are, they also include some other points of view within the story that is, that are woven in. So as uh, Clara and her sister are wanting to volunteer at the orphanage through their church, St. Mary, which St. Mary still stands today. Yeah, I was going to ask you if the orphanage was still around or, or did it get completely leveled out? The orphanage is no longer there, but St. Mary's Cathedral is, and I had the chance to visit it. And it is, it is beautiful. It's amazing to think that uh, how many of these buildings did survive. It's incredible that any of them survived because of, again, going back to the tech, technology of the time, um, the engineering you know, <laughs> pales in comparison to what 2022 engineering is. And there was no seawall. There was none of that. So, yeah, it's just to me, it's a miracle that any of those buildings even survived. Um, and it's just, uh, it's heartbreaking when you hear the stories. I was today years old when I learned about the orphanage and, and, uh, and the children and the, and the sisters. That's, um, that is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, I'd love to know though, because you talk about the, the heavy amount of research that you were doing prior to writing. I mean, you can't just say, Oh, it's a historical novel. I'm just going to make everything up. You got to get the, yeah, you got to get the who's, the what's, and the where's correct. And then it's like everything else you build around that. So yes. um, how how much did you find yourself editing out to keep from, from committing the error of info dumps? Um, it was more restructuring. Um, so I, I knew what things I really wanted to keep in the piece and uh, what I what was integral to the story to bring it all together to have that that historical accuracy, but without being too info dumpy, it was really about uh, structuring the story in a way that told the entire the entirety of the the event and the people surrounding the event, but not do it in kind of a textbook sort of way. So it's not a nonfiction book, but you get a lot of historical accuracy. Well, it is all historically accurate, 
except for the Gladys family, you know, which is a, a, a product of my own imagination, a vehicle. The characters are a vehicle for, for the event and for the story. Whenever I talk to authors of historical fiction, I always think of this interview that I had with Brad Thor last year, uh, and he talks about faction. So he's a he's a political thriller writer, but he you know it, it's tying in current events. So this is really no different. Where you've got your readers who are like, oh wow, I'm going to Google that because it's like there's so much fact, but it's also a work of fiction. So it's faction, <laughs> and so it, it takes a it really takes a creative mind to be able to be able to tie in all these actual historical details and all this info and weave it into something that's going to want to keep people turning the page. And what is really cool is that you can go from writing about the great storm of 1900 and vampires and lycanthropes, and you're also taking people to a completely different spot. Now you've got a pen name and I got to hear all about this because 2022, this is like a whole new side of Anna, or should I say, Vanessa. So Vanessa Morse, the pen name that I chose to explore the darker side of romance. And um, The Nymphetamine Girls is the first book by Vanessa Morse, but it will not be the last. So it um, just a trigger warning, um, content warning here. It is a dark romance. It deals with some very heavy, very dark topics that are not discussed enough. It follows the dark side of privilege. Growing up in an affluent neighborhood myself, um, you see that there is, people say, a privileged life. And that's meant to sort of insinuate that everything is wonderful and there are, you know, you know rose-colored glasses. And that is simply not the case. There's a very dark side to privilege. And we see that uh, in the Nymphetamine Girls, and specifically in the friendship between Natalia and Lisette. And it also brings to light some uh, mental health issues. And that's really the, so there is a lot of spice. It was a very spicy book, but there is a very deep underlying message about the power of mental health and about preserving your own at all costs. Before we wrap up the interview, I'd love to do a rapid fire, Anna, beginning with your favorite place to write. The only place that I can, which is in my bed. What is harder to write, the first sentence or the last? The last. You're stranded on an island. It doesn't have to be Galveston. With two books, one fiction and one nonfiction, what are they? Oh, God. Okay, fiction. Uh, Marcel Proust's uh, Swan's Way. Uh, nonfiction. Uh, Eric Larson's uh, Isaac Storm. Best place for readers to find out more about Anna J. Walner and all of her work. AnnaJWalner.com, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I am everywhere. Just uh, Anna J. Walner is not a usual name. Type it into Google and it will take you somewhere that I am. And by the way, that's two N's and then that's Walner with one L. So AnnaJWalner.com is the place to go. You find out all about Saltwater and Driftwood. She's got the vampire romance. She's got the dark romance and all kinds of good stuff happening with her literary talents. Anna, thank you so much for talking with me on the pod. Thank you, Freddie. It's been a pleasure as always. Hey, it's me. I'm back with a quick little nudge. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did, 
putting it together for you, then please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the newsletter at cruisethroughhtx.com and share with your family and friends. Thank you.